Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, June 20th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? You ever done a full track and field workout before? Well, I define full because I I think I have. I just, I don't know what you mean. Uh, Sprinting, jumping, shot put. No, never a full one. Don't do it if you have to leave the house the next day. (laughs) My uh, body's pretty sore, but I had a fun time learning a bunch of technique, trying some new things, and uh, hopefully improving as well. Yeah. Um, wow. I know that the uh, world championships are on right now in track and field and uh, Shikari Thompson, I believe, won the 100 meters for the woman today. And then I saw someone set the world record for shot put. Okay. I think he almost, that was I, yeah, almost I saw it on Instagram. Was... He almost launched it right out of the like area craziness. <laughs> okay. I, <laughs> Just, yeah, not quite our wheelhouse, but no, I know you made me think of it. But um, well, that's wonderful. I spent the day at the beach, so oh, <laughs> a little different, wow. different vibes there. Uh, a lot of relaxing in the sun. Uh, first beach day of the summer, which is nice. Sets a good tone, and now, now, now we know the uh, the the plan, right? Going to the beach the first time, you got to figure out the traffic. You got to figure out the crowds. You got to figure out. Uh, how long you want to be there if you're getting lunch if you're bringing lunch there's a, there's a lot of logistics that goes into it so now feeling good got the first day out of the way and and hopefully many more to come where'd you hit up Fort Stanley okay yeah very nice uh we got there around 11 a.m and it was like Lake Erie of course is unpredictable but very very foggy and the sun didn't burn through until about noon um, and then it ended up being an absolutely excellent day. So feeling good, uh, feeling a little worn because taking in a lot of sun, but uh, got home, watched an awesome basketball game, and I'm feeling juiced for the pod. <laughs> Speaking of which, on this podcast, we will walk you through uh, quick notes I have from the Euro Cup over the last couple of days, uh, and we're looking forward to some uh, third round of games action before we get into the knockout stage. Max has got some combat corner. Uh, then we will talk about the basketball game we saw today, as well as a couple others, a little bit of talk in hockey, and then some tennis and baseball to wrap things up. So without further ado, I will jump right into my notes from the Euro Cup uh, from Thursday onward. And I want to start with um, what we already know, and that is the final Group A standings in the Euro Cup. Uh, Italy, three solid performances. They don't score three goals today, but they get the victory uh, that they needed against uh, Wales and doing so secure their top spot in Group A. Wales ends up clinching the second spot uh, because of their result uh, in the group and they will finish ahead of Poland or sorry, not Poland, pardon me, Switzerland, <laughs> who managed to get a big, big win against Turkey uh, today. And, and with the four points, most, likes, most likely means that 
uh, Switzerland will grab one of those four third place slots in the tournament. Four points is pretty solid um, and should have them in the mix there. So a big result today for Switzerland, um, but we know Italy and Wales are through for sure into the knockout round. So I wanted to talk about the, the third round of games we have coming up because I have some, uh, it drew the ire uh, of myself with the scheduling that they had for these games. For the last week, it's been at least Eastern Standard Time. We've got 9 a.m., noon, 3 o'clock, clockwork. It's been awesome. You get to see all the games. But because, so I understand the reasoning right now, they have to run the games at the same time to avoid teams sitting guys or to avoid them jockeying for position. And so that's why they're running the games at the same time. So teams are making sure they're starting their best lineups. My issue with it is in a tournament this big, where each point in these groups is so important and so vital, I don't think there's going to be any jockeying for position or guys being sit because none of these teams have locked up the number one spot in the group uh, going into this final round of games. So they still have a lot to play for. And so I would prefer if they kept to the games running in sequential order so I could end up seeing them all. But now I have to pick. Uh, one game out of two for each of them coming up over the next couple of games and just bummed me out. And so I had to, I had to bring that up. Another result that bummed me out was, uh, well, actually it didn't bum me out. The Scots after a disappointing result to the Czech Republic, they actually end up drawing against England, which is a huge, huge, huge uh, moral victory for them. And if you're the British side, you have to be disappointed because of course you want to beat your rivals uh, as well. It, it, it signals that this English, England team maybe will play down to the competition a little bit, and that's really not what you want to see if, if it's a side that a lot of people, quite frankly, believe couldn't win the whole thing. Um, so just uh, it, the, the warning signs are starting to appear around England if they can't get uh, a much-needed three points against a, a profoundly weaker Scottish side. But I would love to move on uh, to another disappointing team, which is Spain so far, uh, two ties now in their first two games. They tie Poland after having a one nothing lead, and, and Lewandowski equalizes that one. And of course, they also drew in their first match of the of the tournament against Sweden. And so now they are not in first. Sweden holds first in that group, uh, and Spain needs a win to get into the knockout stage, and also a little bit of help from Sweden, uh, who plays Poland in this, this final matchup, but two ties from Spain against teams that are just weaker teams, uh, at, at its very core is it's gotta be something that's worrisome for the Spanish fans. And, uh, maybe we'll see if they can turn it around, but uh, definitely a team to watch in this final couple of days of, of Euro action. And then finally we will arrive at the group of death. And so this is the one that everyone's eyes have been on and, uh, the group really flip-flopped <laughs> through the first half. Hungary played really, really clean, really solid defensive structure, 10 men behind the ball, 11 men behind the ball. And in the extra time of the first half, Hungary gets a break. They score a goal and France is absolutely shocked going in the locker room. Uh, it would be a massive upset. The biggest one uh, the tournament has seen so far, but France composes themselves. Uh, they basically get an injection of like energy from the goalie drop kicking the ball <laughs> five sixths of the field. Kylian Mbappe wins it. 
uh, at the back end and, and cuts it back for a deflection and Griezmann pots it and, and France ties, but that's not the result that they wanted, especially in a group of death where every point is so vital. And on the other side of that, Germany, after scoring an own goal uh, against France, and that was the difference in their match, they actually get two own goals uh, from Portugal and they take that game four to two. Um, and so it's a huge loss for Portugal. It now means that France sits atop the group at four, Germany at three, Portugal at three, but Germany has a second spot due to the tiebreak of them beating Portugal. Uh, and now it's it's huge match coming up between uh, Portugal and France, which is going to be so, so fun because it is also a rematch, rematch of, of the last Euro Cup. So really, really exciting stuff. Looking forward to that one. And uh, that is definitely the number one game I have circled on my calendar coming up this week in the Euro League action. But alas, that is it for my notes from the Euro. Uh, Max, I'll throw it over to you. Talk some combat corner. Yeah, I don't know if this was on any of your socials at all, but I was very intrigued this morning to see uh, images or videos of taking me right back to 2010 of Anderson Silva clowning around, except this time in a boxing ring, putting his hands down, laying the guy swing at him, showing some awesome head movement, not getting hit in a boxing match that he took that he ultimately won by split decision. And he was boxing against Julio Chavez Jr., the son of an excellent, some say I think the best Mexican boxer. This is a guy that was a former world champion. At one point had a record of like 48 wins in his first 50 fights. He's gone down a bit with age, but not a no-name Joe. Anderson Silva was boxing. And he was able to get in there and get a win. And just, I like everything about this. Uh, we're in this era where there's this trend of MMA fighters going into boxing. I think Silva's reasoning may be a little different than guys like Woodley and Askren, where Silva, I think it's a lot more about legacy and just continuing his martial arts journey. But this is a really positive case or page in a filling the book of this era a couple of things i liked was silva's fighting a guy more around his age and experience level and that doesn't really fly in mma no one's really interested in seeing two 45 year old guys go at it you the only example you can really think of is the chuck liddell to your the third or fourth time match that they fought within the past two years. And that was such a clown show, but for whatever reason in boxing, you think Mike Tyson, Roy Jones, Jr. You think this, it doesn't carry that same negativity or that same ick factor. Uh, and, and that's awesome because it means the guys get paid Anderson Silva received a hundred thousand dollars from Chavez Jr. Because he missed weight. That's in MMA. I don't know in boxing the specifics, but it's usually somewhere between 10 and 30% of the pay without sponsorships and all that that gets deducted and given to the opponent for missed weight. But $100,000, I believe this was the co-main fight on the card. There are plenty of UFC fights where one of the co-main fighters doesn't even get $100,000. So 
Anderson Silva gets to continue his martial arts journey, look kind of awesome at times, get score a win for MMA in the ledger against boxing, which has really gone the way of boxing up till now, and get paid. So this was just an awesome thing for the MMA world in this era of fighters trying their hands in boxing and hopefully sets the tone or gives a little more of an example in shaping this landscape as to what it looks like and what's best for fighters. That's all I got for this combat corner. So we'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to Sports Next Door. Myself, Max, with me, Owen. It's time for our basketball storylines bit. I'm just so excited about that, that totally lost track of names because there's so much that happened. I believe we're going to start with going back to Thursday, Friday. LA gets the win over Utah. Yes, sir. Uh, the big story of that was no Kawhi and... Ty Lue inserts Terrence Mann into the lineup who has been a great source of energy for them and, and really had been solid in all the minutes that he'd played. Uh, but this one, it's, it harkens, like I, I watch this game and I, I see just the level, the level of overall talent in the NBA, I think maybe at an all time high, like you compare it to the run of the late eighties and all the talent that that was there. I think we're reaching that point again now with the, with the current NBA, because if a guy like Terrence Mann, who up until halfway through the season was the 10th, 11th guy in the Clippers rotation can drop 39 points in a game six playoff game. Like it just shows you there are so many different guys who can get it done. Now the shooting is at an all time high. The creation is incredible. And Terrence Mann, man, what a game, um, an awesome putback dunk. He had a poster of Gobert in game five. And in the end, Utah has this great team, this great system. But when it comes playoff time, these teams like the Rockets, like the Thunder they had some trouble with, now with these Clippers, they're able to make enough adjustments and take away the defensive impact of Gobert by spreading him out and having him contest shots on the perimeter and, and man knocked down a ton. And that was probably the biggest reason why the Clippers won is because Gobert was having to close out on him and the Clippers take it even without Kawhi. And if you're Utah, you, you got to make some pretty tough decisions going forward because you've just re-upped Gobert, but he, and he's your defensive player of the year. He's absolute stalwart on the defensive end. He's your guy. But I don't know if you can win a title with him because of the way that this league has gone. It's just he he no longer works. And, and maybe he's a guy you run with in the regular season and you look for a potential small ball five that you can run in crunch time or if teams decide to go small just to counter. Uh, but they're paying Rudy a lot of money to really struggle in some of these games and it's super disappointing for that team um mitchell did everything he could but the clippers and and paul george especially stepping up taking the series and they travel to phoenix where again Kawhi is still out but they have an opportunity because phoenix is missing chris paul for game one because of this bizarre covid scenario and they go into phoenix and they play quite the awesome game one and i think both of us watched it um it was really really fun 
the quick highlights that I have before we really dive into it is we got a DeMarcus Cousins sighting in this game. He had an awesome first half, big impact. He had a great poster on Sarich and then kind of disappeared for the rest of the game. He was in in the bit in the second half and they went at him consistently. So there will be an adjustment made there from Ty Lu. Uh, I was like, my jaw hit the floor several times in this game, just by the pure shot making by Paul George, Devin Booker. Uh, Paul George had this uh, left to right step back in the corner for a three pointer that Booker closed out on. It was just a great three point shot make. And then Booker's like, well, his whole third quarter was incredible. 18 points. But the one shot that sticks out to me is um, he, he gets around another high screen roll. They ran it consistently. And then he cuts back to the left around the free throw line takes a shot and I forget who the defender was. I believe it was Terrence Mann high fived him on the follow through. And it was an, and one make in the mid range from Booker, just a sensational shot. Uh, And Booker in the end was incredible with the trip 40 point triple double. um, And that lob to, to bridges to really put the exclamation mark on things. It was truly a spectacular game to watch. Uh, Max, I don't know if you have any other quick notes you want to touch on, or if you want to really dive in here. And let's really dive in with a lot of quick notes because um, I have a ton. I guess the first and biggest one was I said to you before the show, this did not feel like a game where each team was missing their best player, which was a big na- narrative going in. But as you pointed out, Paul George was sensational. His shot making just seemed unstoppable and fairly consistent throughout the game. I think the Clippers had to depend on him to run the offense a little too much even when he wasn't the one making shots it was off him like driving getting doubled and finding the open look pass and while the Suns were much the same with Booker they were able to put the ball in the hands of Payne in the hands of Johnson in the hands of Crowder and let other guys create offense and just overall this is was a team that Chris Paul has been playing for and helping and growing with all year. The ball movement throughout for the Suns throughout the whole game was so fantastic. Attacking zones, moving, just always finding the open man, always making the next pass, always getting through the rotation. And I think this game could have been a bit less close. Maybe if they had been a bit less rusty, they'd set up a lot of fantastic like open look threes or like really good drives that just didn't drop. But the Phoenix Suns just looked so good. Uh, DeAndre Ayton had the impact that I offensively that I thought Rudy Gobert might be able to have for the Jazz. And I thought at times kind of exposed a small ball lineup as much as you could while not getting exposed defensively. And then lastly, uh, Devin Booker, absolutely the MVP of the game, but I think Mikael Bridges, my MVP of the last five minutes, he was so big uh, hitting that three. And then like a couple awesome cuts to the net where like a bit of hero ball from Booker got them in trouble. And of course that block on George kind of also to seal the deal. Yeah. Also, he had that steal on the on the lob that also finished things up. Yeah, he was really, really great. Um, He's a guy that (laughs) would have fit perfectly in with the Philadelphia 76ers. And and that is the team that traded him at that 2018 draft. Um, But yeah, he really like 
obviously everyone's been talking about the Suns team all year because they are the two seed, but it still feels like some of the guys are underrated on that roster, despite how much we've talked about them now. And Bridges is one of them where he's having his coming out party on the national stage. He's been a fantastic wing defender now for two straight years. Um, I think he could still, there's still room for him to gain a little bit more muscle mass, a little bit more size because Paul George, I think can get into him a little bit physically. And that's why you saw a lot of possessions with Crowder who is, is built pretty solidly. Um, but that's the thing right now with no Kawhi, they can throw both of those guys. They can even throw Cam Johnson for a little bit. Booker can hang. Like they just have guys to throw up Paul George. Even campaign was doing a great job with ball denial late in that game. Um, they're really interconnected. They fly all over the place. They're like, even just the Clippers ball movement was so sensational. And there were a couple points where just Suns guys, this is a breakdown in defense, but they had two guys closing out on the same shooter because it wasn't like that miscommunication where they stand and look at each other and say, that's your guy. It's even if I'm making the mistake or my teammate made a mistake, I'm going to bust my ass to get out and contest that shot because they're giving the effort. I'd rather see you. I'd rather see two people go out and close out a shooter than neither. And that's the effort that they're giving all night. Uh, you saw late in that game with Paul George, with Reggie Jackson, with Devin Booker, who had like all of them had high usage rates and high point totals. They just ha- lost a little bit of legs. Paul George couldn't make his shots. Reggie Jackson c- couldn't make his shots. And then Booker, had a bit of struggle with those final shots, but was finding Aiden for a dunk, finding bridges in the corner for a three. And then of course the lob at the end there to seal it and and make some free throws has that dunk on the breakdown in the inbound possession. But um, Booker just had his fingers on the strings just a little bit more late in terms of playmaking and Jackson and Paul George ISO was maybe not the play you want to go with the Clippers, but uh, yeah, that was like, fantastic you can see that these are the two teams that deserve to be here just by virtue of depth and connectivity and identity the Clippers seem to shift their identity game to game so I'm sure we'll see an adjustment from them but Chris Paul is going to be huge for this Phoenix team because now you don't have to rely on Devin Booker to put up a 40 point triple double but he does it because Monty Williams keeps him in the entire second half he knows this is his guy. We need this game. I'm going to ride you. And then you'll have a little bit of help when Chris is back for game two. So I really loved everything I saw from Phoenix. I loved a lot of what I saw from the Clippers. But again, without Kawhi, they just need a little bit more creativity on the offensive end late in these games. Because there's it, right now, it just seemed like George and, and Jackson are the only guys who can create their own shot. Whereas other guys are relying on them to, to find a shot for them. Yeah, com- I, there seems like very few sets where George was not at least in the play at some point or another, except late in the game. It felt like he almost disappeared. And also a function, the the Clippers coming off the series against the Jazz, whereas the Suns have had an entire week off. So advantage of that is you can run your guy and Booker a little more knowing he's fresh and they also there was never a point in the game when either booker or ayton was off and that's maybe the biggest loss in not having Kawhi. you're gonna have those stretches and in the first half demarcus cousins stepping up huge it kind of got matched by cam johnson both guys were like going four for four five for five 
in that short, like five minute stretch. But then that's when the Suns really started to pull away right at the start of the fourth quarter and the, to the nine minute mark when Paul George was off. And I didn't know Chris Paul's confirmed to be coming back for game two. I don't know if he's confirmed, but that is what I've seen and heard in a lot of places that they were confident that he would only miss game one. And even if the Utah LA series had gone to game seven, he would be ready for game one. So I believe he'll be there for game two, but uh, not a hundred percent sure. Well, the only place I really saw it missing was on a couple of potential lobs for Aiden. Yeah, There were a couple times where he looked like he wanted to cut, started going and you saw the Suns players didn't have it, but the ball movement was fantastic. I thought early in the first half, there were a couple like forced drives in transition where they were attacking like against numbers and not getting a great look, but they really fixed that up in the second half and played with great patience. So the ball movement, the patience, the poise, yes, Chris Paul is going to make this team better, but the things that he brings were there for them in that game. Before we, the last note, before we move on, the biggest difference where you'll see Chris Paul is DeMarcus Cousins will not touch the floor for the rest of the series because what is going to happen is as soon as Cousins is on that floor, Paul is going high screen and roll at him every time and he's putting him in the blender, right? That is what Chris Paul does almost better than any other point guard in the league is he is going to exploit the other team's center and make mincemeat of him. And that's what Doncic did against Zubac. That's what Mitchell was doing against Zubac. And so if Zubac and, uh, and or cousins are in the game at any time, look to see Chris Paul just make their lives a living hell um, and really attack them, especially when the game is tight or if the Clippers go on a run, that's where Chris is really going to take over. And, and that's where Phoenix had success was then they're running that high screener role with Booker, but the Clippers did start switching that eventually. And that's where Paul really comes in is he's the guy who dissects the game, finds the mismatches and, and then is going to get the right person with the right matchup. And that's how Phoenix is going to score. So that's a big part where he'll change it. And Jay Crowder after the game was saying that they missed him in a big way, despite the win. So yeah, uh, things are looking up in Phoenix, but also if you're the Clippers, familiar territory. You actually have one more game to work with before you really got to start trying in the series. It's they're in data collection mode right now. Exactly. And who knows, maybe they are trying to buy a little time for Kawhi to get healthy. All right, let us move to another fantastic game. The last two days of basketball, three days, have been super, super awesome. And we got game seven between the Bucks and the Nets and a very surprising result based on the way the game was played. We previewed this series saying this seems like it will be the best series of the second round that game seven lived up to that. Yeah, definitely disappointing before that game seven, although game five was just awesome from Kevin Durant. Uh, yeah, the, the series took a while to warm up, but once we got there, it was great. And, and <laughs> the Bucks go to seven guys, basically, uh, in this game. And, and the Nets also go to seven guys. Like, it was just, you tighten your lineup, you play your best guys, let's see what happens. And Kevin Durant with just another unbelievable performance, 48, 9, and 6. And he was a centimeter away 
from hitting that game winning shot. Like that kind of is something that isn't talked about because of how awesome the shot was. And then him just not being able to hit any down the stretch in overtime, but he was an inch away from that being a three point fadeaway shot over Tucker to, to win that game. And wow. Yeah, that was a heck of a shot. It was a heck of a stretch. Um, I had a ton of notes here where Drew Holiday ghosted for the first 45 minutes of the game while Giannis had a fantastic first 45. And then, of course, we've talked about Giannis needing someone to play in those last three minutes for him because it's just not where he's going to be proficient. And Drew Holiday had some big, big shots down the stretch. He finally showed up. Um, and then what happened was Brooke Lopez has an absolute brain fart on an inbounds play with like 11 seconds left. I don't know. You have to know the time on an inbound and he gets it. He tries throwing it to Middleton, but it's shot clock violation. Only two seconds left, dude, you're seven foot 18 and a half. Like just throw up a shot. You can't get blocked. It's so brutal. And that's what leads the nets getting that final possession. Kevin Durant with the unbelievable shot sends the game to overtime. And then in overtime, it was really brutal (laughs) for the first three and a half minutes. The Bucks did not score. It was Giannis struggling. He got stripped by Harden a couple of times in the post. Uh, Middleton bricking a shot, Holiday bricking a shot. Uh, Really, really struggling, but they were getting bailed out because James Harden in the game, but he wasn't looking to score. And he, of course, with the hamstring injury, his shooting was terrible. No lift. Um, he had that crazy bank three late in the game that was unbelievable. I thought that game was over at that point. But late in this game, the Bucks kind of switch it or they they stay home on, on the screener and force Harden to try and create his own shot. And he just, he couldn't do it. So then the Nets go back to KD. And, and by that point, KD, like <laughs> he had lost all the legs. He had no, nothing left in the tank. And it's hard to blame him. Like it was a very taxing series playing so many minutes, especially game five and game seven. Um, we had mutual foul outs between Blake Griffin and PJ Tucker, the two guys being used on, on your opponent's best player. Um, and, and that definitely had a, an effect both ways. They, they used up all six fouls, right? You got to get your money's worth if you're in that game. Um, and I was surprised that Giannis was not defending Kevin for that final possession. But Middleton gets in his airspace. Uh, Lopez with a huge block down the stretch as well on the drive by Kevin Durant. And then Middleton with a clutch, clutch bucket to put the bucks up to you think, Oh God, Kevin Durant's going to send it to overtime again, but he airballs the shot. It was great defense in the end. And he just didn't have enough lift and the bucks, man, I don't know. (laughs) This is huge for them because the nets really exposed a lot of their weaknesses as a team, but they got through it. And now against a team like Philadelphia, they may match up a little bit better because of the fact that um, I don't know if the Sixers necessarily have a guy to defend Giannis. They might go Embiid, but Simmons is a little bit too small um, for Giannis. He's a great defender, but that will probably be the matchup there. And then if you're the Sixers, like you would have rather face the Nets because if you're Embiid, you can just 
dominate people. I'm talking as if the Sixers are already winning, by the way, which is ridiculous for me, but we're just going to assume that for now. And if now the Bucks have a center in Brooke Lopez who could be a big body there to at least disrupt it. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. I did not think the Bucks were going to win in that slow, grindy pace down in the end, but they managed to somehow pull it out. And this is, this is the biggest opportunity for them that they're going to get because, you know, next week, next year, LA Lakers are going to be back. Uh, Brooklyn Nets are going to be fully, fully healthy. I think I picked the Nets next year to win the title already with a healthy Kyrie, James Harden, Kevin Durant. That team is a nightmare because we just saw with just KD basically. And 25% of James Harden, they took the Milwaukee Bucks to game seven. So Brooklyn early favorites for next season's title. Sorry, I rambled for like five minutes straight on this game because I just had so much to talk about. Max, I don't know if you have anything left to add. Yeah, I guess ultimately came down to the Bucks defense being able to finally stop Kevin Durant, which maybe it's more through attrition than anything else. I agree with you that it's absolutely ludicrous that Giannis Antetokounmpo all defensive team, former defensive player of the year winner, all two-time MVP. I'm sure he's going to be, if not already, like first team NBA guy who put up 40 point plus 40-ish points in game seven, and he's nowhere to be seen in the last two minutes of overtime. They're not trying to run him offensively and they're not using him defensively. It's, they won the game, so... That's the, but that's just hard to wrap your head around. And yeah, I, if it was any other year, I'd roll my eyes a little at the statement of fully healthy Nets team because we, with Kyrie, we've seen him just not available for playoffs so many times with Durant. You don't really know how next season is going to go, but this entire NBA season has just been a, contest of personal health and how well you can take care of your body and stay game ready so i don't want to extrapolate too much from it in terms of next season once they've had a full off season and once they're playing at a more spaced out schedule 76ers hawks i've got no idea who's going to win that one so i do not want to speak about how the bucks will match up against the winner just yet it's very true. Uh, at the time of the pod recording, uh, Hawks are up five in the second quarter. Um, it, it's a great point that you make about attrition because every team is experiencing it. Uh, it. It was a little bit of a factor in game five between Philly and Atlanta, which we're now on now. But in game six, uh, it seemed like Embiid played a full game rather than coming out and using all the momentum generated from the home crowd to just have a great first half and then really kind of slink into the darkness. He paces himself, has a fantastic game. Um, Philly guts it out, and Atlanta's got to feel pretty bad about letting this one get away in that game six because they had a fantastic opportunity at home to really sneak by the Sixers and get in the conference finals. Um, and yeah, this, this game is going to come down to the, the, Bogdanovich and Collins really no-showed in game six. 
but who is going to be the role player from both sides that steps up? Because Simmons is going to play his defense. Embiid is going to get 40 and 15 or whatever. Trey Young's going to have 30 and 10. It's like all the guys, all the big guys are going to show up, but who's going to be that role player who steps up in game seven? And it sure as hell is not going to be anyone from Philly's bench. Um, <laughs> unless Young, I'm wrong already. From the field and four for five on free throws as we speak. Sorry. Yeah, he's a baller, dude. He's been unbelievable so incredibly tough smallest guy on the court biggest heart um it's been fabulous to watch and i look forward to getting the end of this game probably uh just after we finish recording the pod we'll probably be done before the game's over i'm looking forward to it and and we may talk about it a little bit on thursday's pod but uh yeah it's gonna be great down the stretch that's it for playoff basketball but let us talk quickly about the draft lottery coming up on Tuesday. Um, It's a bigger deal in the NBA, I find, at least this year with the draft lottery, because it just feels like there's more surefire impact stars in an NBA draft than you can get from an NHL draft, just from the way that the league works, where one player can have a greater effect on the game. So we obviously know that the NHL draft, we touched on it. Buffalo's got one, Seattle's got two. It's great for them, but I couldn't even name you the number one prospect in the NHL right now, whereas I am very keyed in on this upcoming draft and the six players at the top of it, mostly because the Raptors have a shot at one of those. They have the seventh best lottery odds at getting the number one pick. If they did so, I would lose my mind. I My expectations are not up. But uh, great opportunity to get into that top six and and get a franchise boosting player to add to this fairly young core of OG, Pascal, Freddie, uh, Gary Trent. So definitely looking forward to the lottery on Tuesday night. I think the the two biggest stories that we have coming into this draft is, is well, of course, where the lottery balls are going to fall, who's actually going to get the number one pick and have a shot at selecting Cade Cunningham or Evan Mobley. Um, those are probably the one and two guys on the board. But the big one for me is where will this Minnesota pick land? Because they managed to do the impossible and reverse tank late in the season when they should have been tanking more. Uh, they win a bunch of games near the end. Anthony Edwards stat pads, tries to get rookie of the year. Doesn't work. Lamelo Ball, your winner. But the Timberwolves climb into, I believe it was the fifth best odds now at the number one pick. And if their pick does not fall in the top three, it belongs to Golden State. Something we've already mentioned, but it, it is a big deal because Golden State already have that, that top, that second overall pick where they get James Wiseman last year. And now they have an opportunity to select in the top of the draft again. So does it become, do they select one of these players in the, in the top five, if they get that pick with like four or five or six um, and decide that's the guy they want to run with uh, along with James Wiseman, then you have your two cornerstone pieces for the next 15 years again, or is it a package deal where it's Wiseman, where it's this pick, where it's, um, Kelly Ubre or Andrew Wiggins, one of those guys, and you're bringing in another star to put with Clay, Dre, and Steph, or they have so many options. You maybe you just move Wiseman and someone else, or maybe you just move this pick and someone else on your roster. But it 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 means a huge, it means a whole lot for Golden State if they can get this pick. But if your Minnesota falls in the top three, then of course you have this incredible opportunity to add to a roster that already includes Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, uh, Malik Beasley, Josh Okogie, 
Jarrett Culver, a bunch of young guys that you can continue to build around. So really, really fascinating what happens with that pick. Um, if the pick falls in the top three, then Golden State gets Minnesota's 2022 first round pick unprotected next year. You got to think it's got to not be as good as this one is going to be just based on the trend that Minnesota, Minnesota was showing at, at the end of the season, but uh, definitely a big thing to look at. The other storyline that I wanted to talk about going into the draft lottery on Tuesday night was this trade between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Boston Celtics. Kemba Walker goes to the Thunder uh, along with a first-round pick and a second-round pick, and in return, the Celtics get Al Horford coming home, uh, Moses Brown, and a 2023 second. So my instant reaction to this was (laughs) forever Danny Ainge has been – revered as a general manager because he never seems to lose a trade and from the podcasts and and what I've listened to is is that seemed to actually get Boston in trouble because he was so busy trying to win every trade that he was too busy compiling assets and not trying to fit together a team that coalesced right and we saw that this year with the struggle that the Celtics had and so the big thing here is sometimes you have to be willing to lose a trade in order to get a guy that is your final piece, right? Sometimes it takes giving up that first round pick, that extra depth guy that maybe you still want to take a chance on in order to get your buyout guy or in order to get the guy that's going to fit in with the rest of the team, right? Sometimes it's okay to lose a trade. And that is what the Celtics had to do here. You have to get off of Kemba Walker's contract. They just, he is up against father time and science where just a guard of his stature who has had the injuries is not going to have the same quickness, not going to be as effective. You move off of him. People are complaining that they still get a bunch of salary back, but the thing is, is Horford's contract is up one year earlier. So it just gives you extra flexibility moving forward. You have to give up the first because no one else is going to take Walker's contract. Um, You get a decent center backup in Moses Brown that maybe you can work with or, uh, you have Robert Williams, you have Taco Fall, uh, you have Tristan, well, Tristan Thompson, I think is gone. It was just a one-year deal. You've got a lot of centers there. Moses Brown showed some flashes of being pretty interesting on OKC last summer uh, or last year. And it's it's just move Kemba out, refresh things, see if you can change up the vibe. Al Horford was awesome when he was in Boston. He's getting paid a lot, but he is a solid player. And I think he'll try a lot harder, harder when he's back in, in Boston. So maybe that's something that they can use to have success next season. And then if you're Oklahoma City, this is a fabulous trade. You just continue to gain assets. I don't know. They're up to like 33 draft picks now over the next seven to eight years. It's unbelievable. Um, this opens up room. Now they've moved Moses Brown to maybe if they finish and fall in that second, third pick, they're looking at Evan Mobley to be their starting center moving forward. Uh, great would be a great selection for them. And then if you have Kemba Walker, who knows, maybe it turns into a Chris Paul situation where you revive his career, make him look great. And then you can get more assets for him around the trade deadline, more, even more picks to add to the collection. Right. If not, I could see Kemba probably being bought out by OKC and going to try and ring chase with a team maybe the Lakers. Um, It really depends on how the injuries go with him. I I hope he recovers. I hope he's back to being the normal Kemba Walker, but science is not on his side. So that's my analysis from 
from that trade, really looking forward to seeing what the lottery odds shake out to be and, and fingers crossed that the Raptors land a top five pick. That would be awesome. That's going to do it for our basketball storylines. We'll take one final break and then come back to wrap up the show. And we're back sports next door, myself, Owen, alongside my virtual neighbor, Max. And we are here for some talking hockey, Max game three, the Montreal Canadiens take a two, one series lead at home North of the border game four in action right now, the first period just ending zero, uh, zero is a score. But this is the game that I wanted to talk about because once again, Montreal feeling a little team of destiny-ish. Their coach tests positive over COVID. He's out for two weeks. Um, and they still go in with a with the assistant coach running the bench and, and get the big win. It's just it feels like a team that is driven and nothing's gonna get in their way. And they continue to have success. It's unbelievable. Yeah, at this point in the series, they're three games in. They're not down three nothing. They're showing that they can hang with the big dogs. And a huge part of that has to be Carey Price. I'm, as a Leafs fan, so relieved after suffering at his hands so much that series to not see it a one-time show or a quick flash of brilliance that it has stayed consistent throughout this playoff run. And in the first two periods, I think Vegas outshot the Habs something like 30 to 9. They generated so many more quality scoring chances, and Fleury just kept them in there. Uh, Petrangelo beating him on a high slot moving wrister, but then he had the save of the game, I think, on that cross crease denial and that's what kept at one goal which allowed for them to take advantage of Fleury's fobble but I think if you're the Habs you just know your goalie's gonna keep you in it and all you have to do is trust the system and keep looking for answers searching for offense and eventually you're gonna get that lucky bounce like they did to set up Caulfield's breakaway and that's really all you are away from getting right back in this game and staying dangerous and staying poised to win a series. So that seems to be what the series has said so far. The Vegas Golden Knights need to be perfect on their offense to beat Bryce and they need to, like any small mistake is going to cost them defensively. And so far that, that bar, that standard has put them down two games. It definitely feels that way. And a big mistake by Marc-Andre Fleury there um, cost them the game in the end as uh, they definitely should have won that one and it, it snuck away. And, and that is the kind of chance that Montreal has seemed to come up with time and time again. Uh, I actually don't know who's in net. I think Lainer. they went with Laner, so they did switch yeah. things up cost clear the game and cost him his starting spot yeah because he did have that boo-boo against Colorado but then came back with a great performance uh but obviously this time they're going in a different direction um maybe he just needs a little bit more rest he is getting up there at 37 years of age on the other side Carey Price is phenomenal he's out of this world right now playing at a completely higher plane of existence and he truly is the the story of this series, along with the fact that Vegas is missing their number one seven center in Chandler Stevenson. And it seems that Montreal does have a bit of luck when it comes to getting rid of the other team's top centermen. 
uh, whether it's Tavares, Shifley, or, or Stevenson, but I, I don't really need to dwell on that. Um, I wanted to talk. It's hard to notice these things when you're cheering for the other team that's going up against it. And then the week preceding that, where you have a hockey kind of depression mode where you can't watch a series. So this is the time where I've finally got to watch Montreal with a neutral observation. And what I've seen is their defense who they only play four of them, basically the entire game. They sit back so deep in the zone and they literally just stuff everything that happens when you get underneath the circles. They allow teams to play perimeter hockey, but as soon as you get uh, deeper than, than the face-off circles in their own zone, they punish you. It's Weber, it's Sherratt, it's Petrie. They just punish you into the boards. They stop the cycle. They're so great at mucking up that space. And it, now I realize why the Leafs and why the Knights and why the Jets have struggled so much to create offense against this team because they really shut things down so effectively. and. While I will never cheer for the Canadians, I do. I have now reached a point of peace and harmony where if they do now have success, it doesn't pain me. So because I think it would be cool for such a historic franchise to have that level of success. So they don't have a new supporter, but I am now indifferent um, and, and will accept whatever fate is bestowed upon them as we go deeper into this playoff run. <laughs> Probably the best they can hope for. Yeah, I think Vegas's defensemen have scored more goals than their forwards at this point in the series. And the space is there for the defensemen to take advantage, but Vegas just hasn't been able to get that cycle game going. They've had a good forecheck at points, but when they cough up the puck, they're not setting up a ton of super high-quality scoring chances with it. This the lineup is shuffled with one piece out you have to move everything around and there's a bit of a hit in chemistry but this is a team that's really similar to the habs and that you really don't know who's going to step up when you have a lot of lines that are capable of going hot and cold we've seen it from the habs with the uh, old timers line pete uh stall and perry i think and armia so far leading the team in points at this playoffs We've seen big games from Caulfield and Suzuki. Game three, it was Anderson with uh, the one goals. Hard to credit him for. It was though, a great given... feed by Byron. That was lovely. Yeah. I'm talking the first, he got two goals because yeah. the first one. Well, the tough. overtime one's the one I'm talking about. It was awesome. For sure. But that, it was the Anderson's the one who tipped it down. Mm. And yeah, so to Foley is due, I think, to get red hot and put up a couple. And Vegas has that same capability, man. Got like Marcheso, Tuck, Carlson, Stone. Like, there's so many guys who are just capable of surprising you. And it is a really deep offensive lineup, but maybe they've got to look a little at playing. If they're not going to out physical Montreal, figure out how to deal with that. Um, use the defenseman offensive success to their advantage and get the Montreal team moving chasing a bit more something because it would be really great though to have the Canadians go on to the finals and I think get a chance to get revenge for the Calgary Flames in Canada when the Calgary Flames last lost the Stanley Cup finals at the hands of the Tampa Bay Lightning would be an excellent storyline for sure 
Uh, it's a great thing that you bring up Tampa because we'll transition into the uh, other series here in round three uh, between the Lightning and the Islanders. And basically the only thing I have from this game is the save of the year. Yeah. Imagine like that, the incredible instincts and a once in a lifetime opportunity to truly be like a hero for your team. Ryan McDonough with the absurd spin move. If he had scored that, that is a highlight of the year candidate in itself. Absolutely jukes the first player trying to block a shot and the goaltender out of their jock straps and has a wide open net and Pulak slides across makes the save with like a second left on the clock and ties up this series for the Islanders. Unbelievable. A huge play by him. That is again, Islanders, Canadians, both underdogs in their series, but are having these playoff moments that really make you feel team of destiny with them for the Islanders. It's their last run in their, in their current arena before the new one opens up. And they're having some awesome moments on their playoff run. So who knows? We could see a a battle of the two most boring teams in hockey by the time we get to the finals. And that might just be a snooze fest for everyone. And uh, still lots of hockey to go here. Quite a few games left. I could see both of these series going seven. It's been really, really fun. Yeah. uh, It feels punch counterpunch right now in this Islanders lightning series. We'll see if Vegas can counterpunch tonight and also make it a best of three. But uh, man, the playoff action just gains so tight to that. You go from being paralyzed and missing so much of it because you don't even know what to watch to at this point, it's almost that you catch every second of every game. Yeah. All right, we will finish up the show here. Max, I don't know if you have, if you saw these tennis matches this weekend. Um, I have a little. Uh, both our Canadians losing in the semifinals yeah. of their respective grass tournaments. Uh, Felix may be feeling a little better about his loss. He went down against Umber, who then went on to win the Halle against Medvedev in a really quick performance. Uh, and Felix had so many chances, so many break points, um, and Homer just hung in there and leaned on his serve at times, erased a couple of mistakes, but just would not go away. Felix couldn't find the shot. And when your back's against that wall so many times and you answer the call, I think it just gives you the confidence that when you get the opportunity to go full throttle and sure enough, that's what happened. Chapo a little more disappointing maybe against Nori. It, it felt like Nori really just wanted it more. He was the more aggressive player on his shot attempts and more often than not that paid off and dictated so many of the rallies to have like an easy enough time breaking. But then Nori falling against Berrettini in the finals. So those are our two big grass winners of the ATP 500 events, Berrettini and Humbert. I think Humbert coming off winning the uh, French Open doubles as well. So he's had a fantastic couple of weeks, but definitely along with Nori, who I think had a like fourth round run into the French quarters, some names to keep an eye on. Semis, not bad at all for our Canadians. 
And I also just wanted to make a quick correction. I said to something last pod, I didn't think Djokovic was competing at all, but he is in fact competing in the Mallorca Championships, the first ever grass event in Spain, which is a 250 level event, along with Medvedev, who was bounced from the first round of, I think it was the Halle and not the Cinch. If I said Medvedev earlier against two on bear one, I meant Rublev. Lovely. Well, all I have to say about our Canadian lads is I'm glad they got their one last, their sorry, one loss on grass season of the out of the way before they joint win the Wimbledon Open this summer. It was their second loss, but yes. Ah, okay. Well, they got their second loss out of the way. There will be no more losses on grass from this point forth. For either of them, right? Either. I know. I'm looking forward to uh, the it's Wimbledon Trophy <laughs> coming coming from the uh, the Queen's country to our country here in Canada. Looking forward to that. <laughs> All right. We'll slide in here. Quick note uh, on baseball. Jays had a tough week, but... They managed to their season hanging by a thread about to light to about to flatline. And they somehow managed to resuscitate it with a five run ninth inning yesterday against the Orioles, uh, Bichette, Vladdy and Randall Grichuk all with some huge hits, huge at bats. And then they get the win today uh, to take the series against the Orioles. So they revive their season. They're still in it. But they need to make some moves. They already brought in a reliever from the Mets, and they're going to definitely be some more trades on the horizon as they look to claw their way back into the division, hoping to get some guys healthy. Um, but it's a huge stretch right now for them because their season is definitely hanging in the balance at this point with the Rays and the Red Sox having the success that they are having. So that does it for this one. I'm glad we could get through all of the sports action in a timely manner. Uh, this will get, this game will be coming out after Game Seven result between the 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks. Max, as it stands, the game was currently a one point game, uh, 45-44 for Atlanta. Who do you have taking Game Seven? You know what? The Bucks upset the Nets. Didn't feel like they'd get it done, and they did. So why not go with the Hawks? All right. I am going to take Philly because down the stretch in these games where physicality really takes over in game seven, I think Embiid is the most physical player. They've already had their heartbreak from the Kawhi Leonard shot, which lives in uh, our hearts forever and ever. So I think Philly is going to rectify that and and get a big game seven win here and, and set up a date with the Bucks. One of the cruelest things we in Toronto ever did was put that shot on a mural in our airport. So every time the 76ers come to Toronto, (laughs) they have to look at that mural and relive that moment. That moment is everywhere. I'm sure Embiid relives it many times because we have all the screen grabs of him crying in the hallway and uh, all of the photos of Marcus Gasol holding him as his child. It's it's quite wonderful, really. will say the deciding factor in game seven was the wear and tear on Durant and Embiid I think has had a lot of not great second halves and you've got to think the wear and tear at its peak at this point so I'll present that as a counter argument and leave it at that sports next door signing off